Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. The United States has a proud tradition of being open to, if not encouraging, a foreign investment. Today, however, we'll be talking about a dramatic exception to that rule. I'm talking about CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, and its powers to block foreign investment in the name of national security. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, we're joined remotely by two experts on CFIUS who have experience not only advising clients, but also deep in the mechanics of the organization. Ayman Mir is joining us remotely by Zoom. He served nine years in Treasury where he chaired the CFIUS committee. We're also joined by Colin Costello, who served in the office of the Director of National Intelligence, where he played the role of the primary representative to CFIUS from the intelligence community. Colin, Ayman, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks very much, Joel. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Joel. It's very nice to be here. So, Colin, before we get too deep into the details, why don't you give us a quick overview? What is CFIUS? So CFIUS is an interagency committee that's chaired by the Department of the Treasury and is made up of other departments, including the Departments of Energy, Homeland Security, Justice, Commerce, Defense, State, the United States Trade Representative, and the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy. What CFIUS does is it looks for risks to national security in foreign investments in U.S. companies and certain real estate transactions. What types of transactions are they able to review? CFIUS has jurisdiction over three types of transactions. Transactions that result in foreign control of a U.S. business, transactions that are non-passive but also non-controlling in certain types of U.S. businesses involving critical technology, sensitive personal data, or critical infrastructure, and also certain types of real estate transactions that are near sensitive U.S. government facilities. Interesting. I didn't even know about the, the real estate aspect. So that's just, could be any type of business, just depends where they're located. So for the real estate transactions, it's actually doesn't it doesn't even require a business. CFIUS's original jurisdiction would have allowed it to review the acquisition of a business so long as it provided the foreign person control over the business. The extension to real estate is really to capture transactions that don't involve a business, that just involve real estate assets, but that might be located near a sensitive facility such that they might be able to be used as an intelligence collection platform, but would have previously been excluded from CFIUS's jurisdiction, which was based on foreign control of a U.S. business. So they have the ability to review these types of transactions, all in the name of national security. What about muscle? What kind of power does CFIUS actually deploy? So a very common misconception about CFIUS is that it blocks transactions. CFIUS itself doesn't technically block transactions as a legal matter. Only the president has the authority to actually prohibit or suspend a transaction. What CFIUS does after reviewing a transaction and identifying a risk to national security is seek to mitigate the transaction. And its primary vehicle for doing that is going to be a negotiated mitigation agreement, although it can also impose mitigation if the parties choose not to engage in negotiations. If it identifies a risk that it does not think can be mitigated through a mitigation agreement, at that point, it can recommend to the president that the president prohibit the transaction via presidential order. Oh, interesting. So the committee's real power is that the president takes it seriously, 
but the decision making itself to block must be made at the top the top level. Yes, that's correct. The, the power of the committee, particularly when negotiating a mitigation agreement, is the veiled threat that if the parties don't agree to mitigate through a, a negotiated agreement, that CFIUS always reserves the right to make a recommendation to the president to prohibit or suspend the transaction. And Joel, I would add that as a general matter, CFIUS acts by consensus. So when it makes a recommendation to the president, that means that the Department of Defense, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, Treasury, Commerce, et cetera, have all, in most cases, determined that it presents a risk. So as you'd imagine, the likelihood that the president would take a different view than the recommendation of the committee is, is pretty low. And as a result, what usually happens is that the committee will inform the parties that the committee intends to recommend to the president that he prohibits the transaction. And then even without the transaction going to the president, the parties will withdraw their notice and abandon the transaction. One characteristic of CFIUS is its secretive nature. It's often thought of as this mysterious black box. Maybe, maybe you can explain why that is. CFIUS has a reputation for secrecy that, that's very well earned. It actually operates uh, primarily in a classified environment, uh, which is to say the information it's relying upon other than the information provided by the parties and the information it can derive from open sources uh, is going to be provided by the intelligence community uh, or other government agencies and is going to be classified itself. And also there are very strict statutory confidentiality provisions that prohibit the disclosure of any information provided by the parties in the context of a filing. This includes even acknowledging the existence of a review, even if the parties have themselves acknowledged that it's under review, either in the press or maybe in an SEC filing. If you ask the Treasury Department whether a particular transaction is under review, you're going to get a no comment. The only exception to this rule is if a transaction is prohibited by the president, which has to be done by presidential order and has to be published in the Federal Register. This is a major incentive that parties have to either negotiate a mitigation agreement or if they are informed that the committee is prepared to recommend a prohibition to walk away and abandon the transaction so that they aren't publicly branded as a risk to national security and can maintain some level of plausible deniability potentially about the transaction and why uh, they abandoned it. The CFIUS review tends to be something you never hear about unless the transaction is actually blocked. We've had a couple of really high-profile examples of, of CFIUS review. I'm thinking of um, Huawei and TikTok. Uh, why were those such getting so much spotlight, I suppose? So in some cases, it was because the parties themselves made it public, and then it became a subject of discussion. With respect to TikTok, there was some discussion by the government of that transaction, it was a bit of an aberration. I think it wouldn't be, one wouldn't take that as representative of the way these transactions are usually handled by the government. There were a number of unusual aspects of that case. Including tweets? Yes. The TikTok transaction generated discussion outside the normal course. And you know whether it's comments from the president, comments from uh, the White House, comments from other cabinet officials, uh, those are all pretty unusual in the CFIUS context. I mean, maybe you can break things down a little more practically. If we had, a, let's say, a European company that's interested in acquiring a company in the United States, maybe you can walk through their decision process on whether or not they might need to file. 
So the first question, of course, is whether or not the transaction is within CPS's jurisdiction. Recall, as Colin mentioned, that CPS historically could review only transactions where it would result in a foreign person's control of U.S. business. And there's always a degree of complexity associated with that determination because definition of control for CPS purposes is not a bright line. That analysis has become even more complex after Congress expanded CPS's jurisdiction in 2018 with the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, which, uh, as we discussed, expanded CPS's scope to look at certain non-controlling investments. You had some not insignificant role in, in that new rule. I did. I was involved in negotiating that and working with Congress to structure that law. The analysis become, has become even more complex, whereas the jurisdictional analysis used to rely principally or, or reflect principally the transaction structure. Now it requires a much deeper analysis of the assets being acquired as well. And in addition, the implementing regulations for that 2018 law were promulgated this past year. And so there's plenty of language in these new regulations that carry ambiguity and that call for the application of judgment. In other words, what? Uh, businesses won't, won't know until they reach out to an expert like, like yourselves? Yeah, I mean, candidly, it'll be difficult for businesses to make these assessments on their own. And even for the legal community, there's still a bit of time before the exact meets and bounds of the rules are clear. And the government itself is working through those issues. So it's a dynamic area. Under the law, there, there are two different types of filing, I suppose, requirements, one being the required type, the mandatory and one being optional. Why don't we start with mandatory? What qualifies, what types of transactions would be mandatory filing types of transactions? There are two circumstances now in which a transaction that is within CPS's jurisdiction may be subject to a mandatory filing requirement. The first is where the U.S. business that's the subject of the investment produces certain types of export controlled technologies, what CPS refers to as critical technologies. If it does produce those types of technologies, and if disclosure of that technology to the investor or anybody in the investor's chain would require a U.S. government authorization, such as an export control license, then that transaction would be subject to mandatory filing requirement in most cases. The second instance is where the investor has some government ownership, meaning in the chain, there's somebody that is acquiring at least directly or indirectly a 25% ownership interest in the U.S. business, and that investor is 49% or more owned by a foreign government. In that case, if the investment is in a U.S. business that produces critical technologies or is involved in certain types of critical infrastructure or holds certain types of sensitive personal data, then that transaction would be subject to mandatory filing requirement. So as you can see, the rules are, are pretty complex and not necessarily something that lend themselves to sort of a, a desktop analysis. Is there a list somewhere of critical technologies? I mean, I'd imagine, you know, stealth bombers being an obvious example, but at these days, you know, there's a lot of things that might be considered critical. Yes, there is a list of critical infrastructure and there is a list of critical technologies that are in the regulations, critical technology being defined by existing export control regulations, and critical infrastructure being a list in the CFIUS regulations. 
So that's mandatory filing. And I suppose what happens to those who fail to do their mandatory filing? So mandatory filing is new since 2018. And if you fail to file such a transaction, you can incur a fine up to the value of the transaction. So the, the cost can be pretty significant if you're caught. And if it turns out that you're required to file, the obligation to file falls on both the acquirer and the target and the seller. Uh, so there's an interest in, in the side of all parties to figure out whether or not the transaction is subject to such a requirement. And how about a, a statute of limitations? Does something like that exist in, in CFIUS review land? There is no statute of limitations. There are some additional internal burdens that the committee has to cross in order to reach out to a company that closes transactions more than a few years ago. But it recently has been doing so. It has been reaching out to transactions that are a number of years old, and it can take whatever action is necessary. Let's talk about optional filings. What is that? Is that just where you're not quite sure, or is there a, a special carve-out in the law there for optional? So the vast majority of, of filings and, and transactions are voluntary filings. And the decision to file voluntarily is going to be based really on two pieces of analysis. The first is, what is the probability that if this transaction is not filed voluntarily, that CFIUS will, after it closes or while it's in the middle of being negotiated, come and request a filing? And that's going to be related to the view that CFIUS has of the national security risk potentially posed by the transaction. So when parties are contemplating whether or not to file, what they're really looking at is what is my risk here long term of getting a knock on the door from the Department of the Treasury asking me for a filing and potentially taking the full range of mitigation options that CFIUS has after I've already closed the transaction and merged the companies. What's that going to cost me long term? And is that an acceptable thing for me is that an acceptable outcome for me uh, from a business perspective. So when CFIUS is looking at national security risk, it's looking at a variety of types of risk. And this is one of the areas where it is most confusing to certain companies because there are the obvious buckets of risk related to things like missile technology, for instance, but then there are the non-obvious buckets of risk as well. Things related to sensitive personal data, for instance, if you have an insurance company, type of data collected by an insurance company is identified in the regulations as being potentially sensitive personal data. Identifying those types of non-obvious risks is the major challenge that companies face when they're making that determination of, do I have to file this transaction first as a mandatory filing? And if not, should I file this transaction as a voluntary filing? The incentive for filing that transaction is that if CFIUS clears it, you're going to receive safe harbor. That transaction, so long as there's not a material change to the transaction or a material misstatement in the filing documents, can never be reviewed by CFIUS once it's cleared. Colin, how quick is the process? You know, a lot of times in, in a, an investment deal or an M&A transaction, timing is really of the essence. What, what type of expectation can someone who's filing perhaps a, an optional filing expect in terms of getting back? So the timeline is going to depend on the type of filing. Uh, CFIUS 
has two types of filings. There is a short form declaration, uh, and then there is the longer joint voluntary notice. For a short form declaration, the review period is 30 days. At the end of that 30 days, you're going to get one of several outcomes. You're going to get a notice that CFIUS has cleared the transaction and you've received safe harbor. You're going to potentially get a request for a full filing because they want additional information to continue to look and see if it potentially poses a risk to national security that has to be mitigated. Or you can get a no action letter, which is to say that they couldn't conclude their review and provide the transaction safe harbor, which is to say they couldn't clear it in the 30 days, but they're also not at this time requesting a filing. However, they do have the option indefinitely to request that filing. So if you receive that outcome, what you're thinking then is, what is my risk of receiving a request for a filing in the future, and do I want to now file voluntarily? If you submit a notice, a full notice, you have a 45-day review period followed by a potential 45-day investigation period. Now, the investigation period is optional for CFIUS if it needs additional time to continue reviewing the transaction, looking for risks to national security, potentially negotiating mitigation options. If the transaction is recommended for a presidential prohibition, the president then has 15 days to make his or her decision with respect to prohibiting the transaction. For a notice, however, there's sort of a, another option, uh, which is to say withdrawing the notice and voluntarily refiling it. What that will do is restart the review clock. Um, this is done for particularly complex transactions where CFIUS might not be able to complete its review or CFIUS might not be able to negotiate a mitigation agreement within the 45-day review and the 45-day investigation and just needs additional time to complete its work. I imagine for you know a number of industries that just may make certain types of transactions you know not possible at least transactions where speed is of the essence. So CFIUS does become a competitive consideration for parties uh, a foreign party that is making and uh, seeking to make an investment or compete uh, in an auction against a US buyer may have CFIUS considerations and a timeline that puts it at somewhat of a disadvantage Although then the discussion becomes whether or not, if it's not a mandatory filing, they're going to waive essentially any need for a CFIUS requirement and, and agree to proceed without a CFIUS clearance, or whether they think that the risk is such that they need to build in some sort of CFIUS protection. On the other hand, CFIUS sometimes isn't the long pole intent because the same transaction may have to go through other regulatory processes, including antitrust processes, may be longer than the CFIUS process. Why don't we talk a little bit about the buyer and the seller separately? Uh, I suppose the buyer implications, you know, some of which you've already mentioned, the potential of, of paying a fine if, uh, if they failed to file a mandatory filing. Um, but what are some of the other concerns for buyers specifically when it comes to CFIUS? The buyer in thinking about CFIUS risk has to think about what happens if CFIUS identifies a risk what mitigation might the committee seek and what implications might that have on the deal economics. The buyer at the end of the day is going to potentially face uh, restrictions on how it operates the business. Uh, it may face restrictions on what access insight it has into the business. So it's important for the, the buyer to think through those issues at the front end. And if they think that the transaction may cause CFIUS to seek mitigation that could have some implications to deal economics, 
those are instances in which it often makes sense to voluntarily file with CFIUS so that you have certainty before you close the deal whether CFIUS may seek mitigation that causes some economic harm. The type of access that you have is going to inform the committee's risk analysis. Uh, if you're a private equity fund and you're raising a fund to make an acquisition in the United States, one consideration is who are you raising the fund from and will potentially those financiers present some form of national security risk in the eyes of CFIUS. These are all considerations that a buyer should take into account when determining whether or not to file a voluntary transaction or identifying whether a transaction is mandatory. Okay, it's time for the MCLE credit code. The code for this interview is 10615. Again, that's 10615. Now back to the interview. How about for the seller? Is this, you know, are there specific concerns besides the, the risk that the deal just might not happen? So the, the considerations are most important for the buyer, but yes, the seller has to consider these questions as well. In the first instance, the mandatory filing requirement applies both to the buyer and the seller. So there's a legal obligation to which penalties attach if you get the assessment wrong or you don't file a mandatory filing. Second, for publicly announced transactions, there's the risk that CFIUS intervenes prior to closing. So you want to have considered the extent to which there's some deal execution risk. And third, especially if it's not a 100% acquisition, then close-closing CFIUS review could impose costs on both the buyer and the existing owners. And finally, a seller with other government business so that may appear at some point in the future on, different, on a different divestiture may appear before CFIUS could suffer some reputational impact. So it's important to think about, even from the seller's perspective, as to whether or not CFIUS would be interested or expect to receive uh, notice of the transaction. I mean, what else should companies be considering as they're, you know, setting their CFIUS strategy? So there are other pre-signing considerations that are somewhat unique to the CFIUS process. For example, beyond whether or not to file and deciding whether to include a condition precedent into an agreement as to whether there should be a filing in CFIUS clearance, risk allocation as a general matter is important for parties to consider. It's an important point of negotiation. For example, it's a lot less common to see hell or high water clauses related to CFIUS than you might see, for example, for antitrust, because the remedies that the government would seek to impose potentially in the context of CFIUS are a lot more subjective and difficult to predict in advance than they are in the antitrust context. And the hell or, hell or high water provisions mean, you know, you have to do what you're obligating yourself to do no matter what. That's right. Regardless of what the committee says or what conditions they impose, you agree to close the transaction. Parties may also want to consider other ways to manage the risk that CFIUS may seek to impose on risk mitigation. So for example, if you've identified a specific risk, then you could enter into an arrangement between the parties to address those risks that may be sufficient to forestall the need for CFIUS to act. It's essentially a form of self-mitigation. So it's not a solution in too many cases, but for certain types of cases, it may be the, the trick to avoiding any CFIUS mitigation. When we're talking about mitigation, you know, that doesn't always mean a deal killer. There are, there are certain steps that companies can take. What are some of those, maybe you can give a couple of examples of the types of steps that companies have taken without details 
that would allow a transaction to go forward. Sure, and you know there often are steps that the parties take themselves to mitigate risks. Usually, are a means to avoid mitigation. They're usually not the difference between whether or not a transaction fails or succeeds, but they may reduce the overall burden, or they may avoid the need for any mitigation at all. It could be something as simple as if a foreign person is going to be on the board of a company, and that company has potentially uh, sensitive information about U.S. government contracts or particular technologies, it may be enough to resolve security concerns if there's an agreement that such sensitive data will just not be shared with anybody on the board or with that particular investor. Essentially, a form of internally limiting access to information without CFIUS having to impose that. How about if CFIUS recommends mitigation? What happens then? What's next? When a, a transaction has been filed and CFIUS has identified a national security risk, if it believes that the risk can be mitigated through a mitigation agreement, it's going to engage with the parties uh, to begin negotiations over what that mitigation agreement might look like and what it might say. Uh, mitigation agreements can range in, in terms of scope and severity uh, from a very light touch agreement like a supply assurance agreement if uh, the Department of Defense, for example, is buying a particular type of technology and wants to continue buying that technology post-transaction, uh, or it can go all the way up to an agreement that's going to make that investment entirely passive uh, through the use of a proxy board, for instance. What most parties uh, find when they're negotiating with CFIUS is that it's a very frustrating experience. Uh, and it's frustrating for two reasons. One, they don't have the information that CFIUS is basing its risk analysis on because that information is classified. And two, they rightly conclude that they don't have a great deal of leverage in terms of negotiations, uh, which they don't, because ultimately CFIUS does have the ability to recommend that the president prohibit the transaction. Uh, however, what's important to keep in mind is that if CFIUS is negotiating a mitigation agreement, it's because it genuinely believes that mitigation is possible. If it didn't believe mitigation was possible, it would be recommending a prohibition. And if it believes that mitigation is possible, consistent with the United States being an open investment environment, it wants that transaction to succeed. It wants it to move forward, uh, but it wants it to do so in a way that mitigates the national security risks that it's identified. So the mitigation process isn't necessarily a hostile process. Correct. It's mostly collaborative, uh, particularly if the transaction doesn't involve a high threat acquirer, if it involves a high vulnerability asset like a piece of critical infrastructure, it may involve an acquirer who's very well known to the committee, who's been part of a number of CFIUS transactions and may be party to a number of mitigation agreements. In those instances, when what CFIUS is trying to mitigate is a risk arising from a vulnerability of the U.S. asset, they want an acquirer who's going to be a willing participant and a good partner in terms of executing that mitigation agreement because they want to make sure that it can be monitored and enforced in the long term. And in that sense, they're generally more than willing to negotiate on specific points, and they're more than willing to listen to the parties as it relates to understanding what the business rationale is for the transaction and how they can mitigate the risks while not eliminating the value that the parties are trying to achieve. Colin, remembering back into the days when you were in the, in the office of the Director of National Intelligence, was that part of your communication with the CFIUS committee? Would you say, look, we have some concerns you know, with this particular person being on the board. However, if they were removed or if there was some protection implemented, those concerns might go away. Would those types of mitigation 
steps be discussed, you know, on the committee itself uh, in the initial review? So blessedly, I wouldn't be required to do that because as an impartial analyst of only the threat, I would be framing the analysis of the threat actor and allowing the committee to identify the mitigation terms and then discuss whether they were adequate and sufficient to mitigate the risk. And maybe to give just a little bit more insight into how the process works, uh, the committee, as I said, is composed of nine member agencies. And when Treasury receives the, the filing from the parties, it pushes out all that information to all the member agencies who then push it out within their own organizations. So for example, the Department of Energy is one of the CFIUS members. When a transaction comes in, it goes to all the agencies, including the Department of Energy's CFIUS office. The CFIUS office will share it with the uh, Sandia National Laboratory, the National Nuclear Safety Administration, and a number of other offices in DOE that have some potential role in being able to technically assess whether or not there's a potential national security risk. The same thing happens at other agencies for every transaction. And those agencies then figure out whether or not there's a concern that requires some sort of action. And if they do think that there's some action required, they'll propose that to the committee. The challenge for companies often is that the committee has a problem. It can't tell the parties, as Colin said, what the problem is. And so the parties and their counsel are left essentially to intuit what they think the problem may be and then to propose solutions that they think may solve the government's problem. Oh, wow. That sounds incredibly, uh, that sounds like it could be quite frustrating uh, or at least would require quite a bit of creativity and insight. Absolutely. It requires uh, the parties to know their business well. It requires them to have advisors who understand the types of things that the committee thinks about. Because as Colin said earlier, it may be that the risk is just, it's not obvious. The company itself may be producing a commercial item. They may have no understanding that their technology may have some government application, or they may be producing a commercial product where the government doesn't buy directly from the company, but it buys it off the shelf. And it's in some, it's in some important system. So from the government point of view, it's important that this particular commercial off-the-shelf product be secure, that it not be produced by somebody who's suspect. But the company itself has no idea that the government is relying upon this technology. And so when the government all of a sudden says, you can't sell this product, this, uh, this business to this foreign person, but we can't tell you why, it puts the company in a pretty difficult position of, having to, of trying to figure out, well, how do we get to yes? Uh, and that's where you know, working with the government, trying to understand uh, sort of the, the subtext of their, of their message, bringing to bear experience from prior transactions, all assists in trying to formulate uh, a potential path forward. And we're talking today at a very unusual time in American history. The COVID-19 virus is spread all around the country. Would you consider vaccine technology or those type of companies maybe getting increased scrutiny from, from CFIUS given the current climate? Medical supply chains uh, would absolutely fit under CFIUS's definition of national security, and it's certainly something that a company in the uh, medical industry should consider when making an investment in the United States, because to the extent that what they are investing in has any connection to a critical medical supply chain, uh, CFIUS would certainly be interested in looking at that from the perspective of the extent to which the transaction might pose a risk to national security. 
One topic that sort of feels like the elephant in the room when we're talking about CFIUS, at least in recent uh, recent times, is the relationship with China. Is China still or likely to still be the main target, I suppose, or the main concern when it comes to, to these types of reviews? Chinese transactions have been a subject of focus of CFIUS and the CFIUS process for the past few years. Uh, historically, CFIUS has not been focused on any particular country and it has reviewed transactions from a broad range of countries, including friendly countries. And often the transaction is driven as much by what the target is and the sensitivity of the target as it is by the acquirer. But certainly who the acquirer is, is a significant factor in the analysis. And because China has targeted in the past few years, companies and technologies that are potentially sensitive from an S3 point of view, many transactions involving Chinese investors have received significant scrutiny. We expect that to be the case continuing into the new administration. There may be some transactions that can get through, perhaps with substantial mitigation, depending upon the nature of the transaction. But CPS won't be focused only on, on Chinese investment only. And it's important that uh, investors realize that uh, CFIUS risks and the need to consider potential CFIUS risks uh, exists regardless of where the investor is from. When we're talking about the types of transactions that CFIUS would look at, you know, historically it may have involved more, you know, weapons or critical infrastructure. Now, uh, is it correct that data in and of itself, you know, large amounts of data can be seen as of concern? National security is not defined in the statute and it evolves over time as technology changes, as the relationship between government and commerce changes, the relationship between national security and commerce changes. So you're absolutely right that historically one might have thought about defense systems, missiles, aircraft, certain types of uh, electronics as being the types of things that can raise national security concerns. But as these, as technology has changed, commercial technologies have become more important from a nas- to, to national security. So therefore you have artificial intelligence and robotics, things that are very important from a commercial point of view are also now important from a national security point of view because they are core to providing advanced capabilities to defense systems as well. On the same hand, we have now increased digitalization of of everything. And so it's much easier for data to be accumulated in in large quantities and potentially raise concerns. So it's almost a cliche at this point to say that data is the oil of the information age. But that's an extremely important observation when you are considering new categories of national security risk that CFIUS looks at when they're examining a transaction. Well, Colin, Every company is collecting data, and any tech company worth its uh, salt is 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 probably proud of that. Does that mean that every company has significant CFIUS risk? Not necessarily. CFIUS isn't concerned about all data. It's concerned about sensitive personal data uh, that's potentially identifiable and could be used in a way that might pose a threat to national security. A good starting point for any company trying to evaluate the risk posed by the data holdings of a target is the CFIUS regulations themselves, which are going to specify certain categories of data that CFIUS is concerned with, at least from the perspective of establishing that the U.S. company has what they consider to be sensitive personal data. 
Ayman, Colin, you mentioned the important role the president himself plays in the process of making the ultimate decision on whether or not to block a transaction. We are in a new administration here in the United States. Do you, I, I, before I let you go, I'd, I'd love to get your input on, you know, potential uh, direction you might see for the new administration, any changes in, in tone or, or policy that you might expect. With the Biden administration, I think people are going to be surprised by the amount of continuity that they see, at least in terms of substantive risk analysis in CFIUS. A lot of the issues that presented in, in the Trump administration are going to continue, and really they're continuations of national security risks uh, that have been identified by the Obama administration as well. Where you're most likely to see fairly significant change is in process. So CFIUS to be sure, will go back to what it has historically been as it relates to public communications. There'll be much less discussion of cases in the press. Uh, it'll be much quieter. It'll go back to that black box model that it typically operates by. And in marginal cases, which is to say cases that could go either way in terms of very harsh mitigation or potential prohibition, you may see a greater willingness to at least entertain uh, what that mitigation might look like and to entertain discussions of mitigation in lieu of immediately moving to a position of prohibition. But in terms of the substantive risk analysis, particularly when it relates to high vulnerability companies, companies that have critical technology, sensitive personal data, or access to critical infrastructure, I think people will be surprised by the amount of continuity that they see between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Colin, Iman, thank you so much for taking the time today and shedding some light inside this uh, otherwise black box, as you say, committee. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.